Hello and welcome to the Turtle Tracks Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Van Hooker, and I'm here with director Kevin Monroe, the director and writer of the 2007 TMNT film. How you doing today, Kevin? I'm doing great, man. How are you? Good. So first of all, thanks so much for doing this. It's really uh, excited to talk to you. Oh, please, no, dude. I love this stuff. I love talking about this project specifically. It's so great. So before we get too hard heading into the turtle stuff, I'm curious about your background. How did you find your way into animation? Uh, I grew up uh, east coast of Canada. Uh, sort of uh, not thinking I was going to choose that because I'd sort of been the I, I was sort of the guy who like made like short films on a VHS camcorder and stuff in high school, and I always drew. But it wasn't really back then. It was right before like the whole like Aladdin and. Um, sort of the the, the 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 little mermaid and the aladdin sort of uh you know craze where like all of a sudden everyone was much more into animation it seems like on a, on a sort of a general public level uh there's no such thing as dvd commentary so you never really felt like it was something you could actually do so i kind of went down this path where i thought i was going to be a lawyer and uh i was in uh i was getting a political science degree uh and i was on like the debate team getting ready to go to you know law school and stuff like that and, uh, and i still noticed when i was in the debates that i still spent more time doodling in my margin than anything else right and so i just didn't know what i wanted to do and then uh i was at disney world at the time we went through this this sort of hamster tube that went through this old animation uh, it was an animation i guess it was a it was a legit studio that they had at disney world there in florida and um and uh they had this hamster too that you would go through and it was narrated i think at the time by robin williams from aladdin and you could just sit basically sit there and look at this terrarium of people doing animation and uh, it was sort of the first time as one of those big like you know like god race comes down from the ceiling and i was just like oh my god this is everything that i want to do and so that's kind of that's kind of where i discovered that i could do it and then i went to sheridan college in uh in ontario up in canada for a year and then just came down to la and wanted to start to work and started working there Oh, wow. What was your first uh, job? Uh, the first like, official one was uh, working on Hey Arnold uh, at Nickelodeon. And it was just one of those things where I went in and I, I had two weeks to try to find a job to get back to uh, to get uh, or else I'd, I'd have to go back to Sheridan College. And so and it was nothing at Sheridan College. I just I sort of just wanted to start to work. And so I just went around everywhere and I just like just beg board and soul to, to get in and speak to anybody and so finally I, I did that and persisted at Nickelodeon and and then Craig Bartlett came out uh, and looked at my portfolio and offered me a job so it was just it was all like just freelance stuff at the beginning it was like prop design and layout design and stuff like that and then eventually that translated to storyboards and then character design and then moving on from there so that's great though. that was a good cartoon Oh yeah, no, dude. It was, it was and it, they were just on like their second or third episode, so it wasn't. It wasn't like they had. There was like a ton already done, so they were still trying to trying to figure it out. So, and I would just kind of come in and out, and because it was, I was just a freelancer, so it's not like they had space for me at the studio or anything. But just just seeing sort of the just the buzz of them creating a show was like really interesting to me. I remember like and, and yeah, even being there and then seeing people prepping to pitch shows for Nickelodeon and stuff, just like artists who were like a storyboard artist, but they had this idea kind of thing. And every now and again, you'd go and you'd see sort of, they'd have all their displays up ready to go and pitch. And I think that was probably the first time I kind of wrapped my head around. So you can actually come up with an idea and then try to sell it to somebody. And if someone says yes, then they give you a little bit of money to see if you can make it work, you know, that kind of thing. So it was, it was a, it was a crazy time. It was a good very cool. Yeah. So how did you come from there to find your way uh, directing the Turtles? It's such a circuitous story. Uh, it's I, So being uh, – having now having said that I started at Nickelodeon, it, they, 
it really wasn't giving out a lot of uh, visas, work visas for uh, for people who weren't American. Uh, but the people that were were uh, video game companies. And there was this one company that did this. Uh, it was called Shiny Entertainment that did uh, Earthroom Gym. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so, and to me, like that was, and I was like, I was a Genesis guy anyway, like just by nature. But that to me was that, and the the, the same team when they were at Virgin did like Cool Spot and they did the Aladdin game, and it all felt like it was like hand-drawn animation you're actually playing a cartoon and i know it doesn't sound like a big deal now but like whenever you're thinking about like you know early 90s kind of thing like that there's nobody who was really doing that because the cg cg wasn't anything at that point and uh and just the feeling of having that much animation that much movement and specifically that much character was really cool and so i didn't know what i was doing because i didn't really have any skill set for video games but there was a few that would be looking for character designers and stuff and so then that's whenever i stumbled upon shiny and they were looking for a character designer uh sort of for game after Earthworm Jim, and so I went in, and then again, just it just worked out, and they supported me, and I ended up being there for a few years, and transferred over, and went to like another game company midway after that for a little bit. But that's kind of where I got like really exposed to CG uh, and doing a lot of CG work and stuff, and, and specifically with Shiny, because. Jim had been such a, a, a success for them because it was a video game that they created. They went on to do, uh, they went, it went on to be a TV show and a toy line, and they, they tried for get a movie done. But the whole point being is that I think Dave Perry, the guy who ran it, recognized the power of IP and recognized the power of being able to create something and then exploit it, I guess, basically across different media. And that specifically is something that just really connected with me. And so it was within just a couple of months of being there that I was starting to help develop stuff and create you know pitches for for series and we did this one game that's called wild nine that it, it just it went on for three four years and just could never get made uh and it came out and it just kind of like fizzled and that was it but it was it was a chance to basically do a whole star wars universe right that was sort of had this kind of galaxy high kind of but like with the shiny kind of like sense of humor and so that was kind of the first exposure of doing that and so eventually then i was like well i wonder if i can write and because I, I really wanted to write because i would start pitching these things and i'd say like hey we should pair you up with a writer and, and then i just being i guess the younger control freak that i was i was like no i want to do the writing too so but i but i also knew that i had to sell it so i had to i just basically sat back and i said i'm gonna try to write something if it works i know it'll work and then if not i know that yes i've just got to pair up with someone who writes and so i wrote this uh, christmas special uh called donner that we ended up selling to disney and a company called sunbow i think it was at the time and so it was for abc family and then after that i was like okay i, I know i can kind of do it even though it was like a 22 minute show and then i thought i'm gonna write one feature length script and i know i'm gonna give myself 30 days and if it sucks i'll know it right away and i won't i won't i won't open up final draft ever again <laughs> uh and if it does and if, it, and if i know because i and the only way I, the only education i had was i just read i just i love i love films anyway but i would just read so many scripts i would take lunch breaks and i would walk for like an hour an hour and a half and just like read all these scripts that were like the original shooting script for true romance or stuff like that right like sort of seeing how things were interpreted and stuff so i wrote this spec in 30 days that was basically like beauty and the beast but instead of the beast it was the boogeyman whatever but it, it, it was it was just this thing called boogie and uh stan winston's studio uh uh optioned it and it was just, and it wasn't like a big sale. It wasn't, it wasn't like it ever got made or anything. It actually ended up getting killed because Monsters Inc. came out and everybody was like immediately, well, we can't have, we can't have multiple Boogeyman projects. So oh. for an excuse to say no in Hollywood, right? But the experience taught me that I, I could do it, right? And I, or at least, I, at least I could do enough to, to sort of get in front of people and stuff. So then that just led to, this is a long story, but it's, it's, it's no, it's fine. 
so after that, then I started just working with, um, I started being the guy that would go to uh, Disney TV or Warner Brothers TV. And uh, they when they would option a comic book, there was like comic books that they would option. Like there's like Jason and the Argobots. That was like a smaller, I think it was Oni Press. I can't remember who did that. That was at Warner Brothers. Uh, Disney had the right, they had the rights to Kingdom Hearts, obviously. And they had they'd made like probably 40 different versions of that pilot script. But I, I got to develop one of them and do a whole world and, you know, just basically do up that pilot that never went anywhere. Uh, and so it was basically a good like three or four years of just trying to, maybe two, three years, of just doing pilot after pilot and Bible and doing Bible, like breaking down the world and creating the world and the characters and then writing a pilot script that reflected that. Because, I mean, especially in animation now, like the pilots are so inexpensive. I'll say cheap because it's <laughs> it feels like it's cheap. But like it, it, they never animate anything anymore. It's always these really really complicated 2d animatics that are all based on storyboards with like funny sound effects and stuff and so to studio they can just like crank out as many as they can put them in front of a bunch of kids and see what what hits and what's not but it was a really good opportunity to kind of get to that point now of writing a script and then directing what i thought i wanted it to have what what i wanted to happen whenever i wrote it and then so then that eventually led me to Amaji, who did ninja turtles there's an ending to this story no problems and so um and so uh they were doing this other movie called cattail at the time and they just needed uh they needed someone to come in and be head of story and help put together the story real kind of thing so i did that that's when i heard that they were working on or they were galen walker who was there at the time i think they were starting to talk to peter about uh, getting the rights to it and so when i heard that they were trying to get the rights i just i just became that, that, that was just my end. I just, I just knew it. I just knew that that was something that I really wanted to do. I really felt like it was something where I didn't feel like I was being insincere with saying that I could do something, you know, like fun and that would fit the property, you know, especially after having done so many times with all the, the pilots before up until then. And I just bugged them every day and I would like pitch different scenes. And I think I remember it was like, it was, it was probably one of the first ones I pitched was the fight, the rooftop fight. You know, not that that's like incredibly original to have two guys fighting on a rooftop, but specifically having it being about conflict between the two brothers because no one had really taken the conflict to that sort of state or to that level sort of before. And so it was. Uh, it was so there was a lot that was like the genesis of a lot of those little scenes that just ended up just pitching just trying to get you know trying to get everybody excited enough to say like yeah we should give them a shot and so eventually they, they invited me out to Northampton to go sit down with Peter and uh, and so I spent a whole day with Peter and we went in Galen and we we like segued all around Northampton because that's where Peter's really into segways. He's got a whole area at the time. He had like, I think it was like six or eight or something just lined up and you could just go and go to the barrel of hat helmets and put them on. <laughs> and so we just like drive all around Northampton and so like Peter can do it. And uh, so we, we, we went through the whole day and, uh, uh, and then at the end I brought, uh, I, I had my issue one of, uh, it was like, it was like the third reprint. It was still the oversized version, but I think it might've been the third reprint. I have a third printing too. That's still that same. It looks the same. Yeah. It's, it's fantastic. Yeah. And so uh, I thought, you know, worst case, cause I'd known Kevin Eastman before that oh. and you know, I could get him to sign him. I thought worst case, if I don't get the gig, at least I'll get Peter to sign, <laughs> to sign my thing. So I asked him kind of like how, and he said, okay, cool. And he signed it and then gave it back. And we said, okay, cool. We'll, we'll follow up. I guess we'll talk to you later. And not really knowing what was happening. And then, and then as I was driving back to the airport that night, I opened it up in the front seat while Galen was driving and it said, uh, dear Kevin, make a good movie or else. And he drew a picture of Raphael. And that's how I found out I got the job was in, inside of that uh, comic book signing, which was really cool. So That's awesome. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah, it was really fun. It's somewhere in storage right now, but I got to get it out and frame it. It's really cool. Were you a big? So you were a big Turtles fan earlier than that? 
Yeah, I mean, I probably, I, you know, I, I, yeah, I was, I was, I was, I was obviously a fan, and I, I loved, I loved the series too, especially even as goofy as it was, and and I like, and I liked the comics a lot. Again, I just didn't grow up with a lot of comic book access in my life where we were at the time, but I was always drawn to them, and I would always, and so I, and Turtles was one of the ones that I was, and even the kids that I babysat when I was in high school, I was like 14, 15 and stuff, they were super into Ninja Turtles, so I always had somebody in my life at some point who was really excited about them, where I could sort of uh, have an in, sort of from a fan's point of view of, of what worked and what didn't kind of thing. So yeah, no, I was, I was, I was, I was more than well aware of, of, of the franchise and the mythology, and, and saw saw the first one open. It was the first movie opening weekend too, and that was in high school, which was cool. I remember it was it was right or it was just right before Batman came out, was it the kid? The, uh, nineteen ninety. So just after uh, Batman. It's just after, yeah, and it was just this period where it was, and it sort of felt like whenever the Chris Nolan ones started coming out again, where you just sort of feel that whole, like, comic book movies are just going to feel different from this point on, and that was that sort of feeling of, like, the latex and the cool lighting and the, just everything, it just had such a tactile feel to it, like, in the, for the first time it wasn't cheesy, even though all the content was, was not necessarily the coolest, it didn't matter, because it was presented with such a, uh, it was presented with such a confidence and such a sincerity that you just didn't, you know, it didn't really matter if if they were sitting there arguing with their giant rat father or whatever. You just bought it. I yeah. Think it's, that's the magic of the franchise to me. Now, um, boy, so, you know, there's so many places we can go, and I'll probably bounce around a little bit, but now that we're talking about the live-action films, is your film intended to be in the same continuity as the uh, the earlier theatrical films? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question because um, my pitch from the beginning was that it was. It's like the, this is this is Turtles Four, and 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 the, it was like, well, how do you reconcile the fact that they time traveled? And, and you like, and the second you put in time travel, like in three, you, you can pretty much explain anything. But we had a mythology all laid out, like for like this is what they've been up to, and this is this is where they are, and it was one of those things where. Peter specific. Peter had a lot of control in that film. He had a lot of creative approvals. Like everything had to be sort of go through him. And at the time, he was very much into because he had just finished the uh, the four kids series. Uh, that he just didn't want to go back and tell like another origin story. So the whole thing is like, how do you how do you? But the company wanted like a reboot. The company wanted the studio just like, and everybody like, hey, this is the new version of the turtles. Let's watch. And then he uh, he really wanted to continue the story as opposed to retreading it. So the thing is, how how do you make it feel like it's it's a reset reboot, but at the same time acknowledge what's going on there? So the end the end ended up being it was much cleaner in the original cut of it because we started the movie right away with. Uh, where all the guys were. It wasn't all about like all the backstory mythology because that was something that happened like at minute forty-five or fifty, like in, in the director's cut of that. Mm. Um, so it was much more about like, hey, since you've last seen the guys, this is what they're up to, and it was sort of presented in a much different way that sort of, uh, I think, bridged the gap a little bit better. And right now, it, it comes off more as like, uh, it comes up, bless you, it comes off more as. Uh, more as Easter eggs, I think, more than, than it was intended to. And I think specifically because they were just probably just trying to avoid the issue because there was a little bit of an impasse between Peter wanting to move forward and the people who had to sell it wanting to say, like, hey, we've got a brand, this is something, right? So it sort of fell a little bit into, like, that gray area, but at the same time, I do like that, and I, I do think that there's a world where, like, they did everything that they did in, you know, one through three, and, and the point being that we're going to reset in CG with his now and then continue on and get to like city of the city of war for number five on, 
you know, and sort of do a little twist on that kind of uh, story room, but never happened. Okay, so it was like it was intended to be, but it, like the company wanted it one way and Peter another, so it was like a soft reboot where it could be, but it doesn't have to be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think it was just a matter of perspective, which is cool because as it goes on, like like so many fans like really pick up on that, and they really seem to like notice a lot of those like little like nods and stuff, and then the idea that you can sort of like have it fit within it, but at the same time, if you were like a seven year old kid who saw it for the first time and that was your first thing, then it was more than enough. It's a little heady, I think, like as an origin story because it really assumes a lot of knowledge beforehand, and mm-hmm. that, that's definitively because of that that creative direction that we had to like keep it moving forward. I think so. It's, it's a funny, uh, it's a funny end product. I think it's, it's uh, I like, I, I kind of like the, uh, you kind of got to think about it, angle of it a little bit. I think it's fun. Well, I mean, like it's clearly like them coming back together. So I mean, there's a lot of history in it, but you don't like, and it's hard to say because I can never divorce myself from all the knowledge I have. But it seems like it, it carries just fine, you know, just on its own, on its own legs. Yeah, and I think that's what it was about because it wasn't about necessarily because I think the origin story and the thing that, that probably scared Peter the most was <clears throat> it's just going through all of that that sort of the all the anime like and he's here's the angry one and here's the goofy one and here's the like and and they all got turned into these mute they're all like and, and telling all of that story and they don't really need to uh, and, and and I get the idea that the audience is smarter and you don't have to do it so the idea was rebooting the rebooting the team more than it was about rebooting the franchise, you know, in that way. Hmm. Yeah. Was there ever any consideration of using the old voices or no? Yeah. Yeah, there totally was. Um, we, uh, we talked about it. Uh, the consensus was that they wanted it to be a fresh, uh, they wanted it to be a fresh sort of start in that, in that regard. Uh, so, but, the, but yeah, we had, uh, like, like Corey Feldman reached out. Uh, we had actually, we had actually read, uh, a couple of the guys from the old series too, just because we knew them just because everyone, it's a very small community, all the voice actors and stuff. And there was no reason why we couldn't have. And so, and when I, and now you jump forward to the, the current Nickelodeon series when they've got Rob and those guys on, they're doing like another voice. I, I thought that was so cool. I just love the idea of it. And that was something, again, as we were sitting there, like have, doing a couple of read throughs with people, it was just, you could just feel it. It just, it just worked really well. Cause these are guys who know the characters. They know basically the tone and everything, but at the end they just basically wanted sort of that, that newer updated take. I think, I think cause, and you looking back at it now, I realize like, yeah, that's the machine, whatever that is. If it's the studio and the, you know, Warner brothers, Weinstein, Amaji, whoever it is, right? The machine of what that is, the machine that needs to go out and make money off of it. They they wanted, I think, as many reboots as they could in there, or as many fresh starts, right? So then we're like, okay, cool, let's just do new voices then. And so we went in and uh, did a casting call, and then, and then we went down the road, of course, where everybody wanted to have, you know, more recognizable, you know, on-camera actors, you know, to do all the voices, as, as you're prone to do. And that was one of the bigger sort of battles that we did. Because at the time, it was I really believed in just they just needed just to be good voice actors, mm. and uh, so we did. And that's why that's why you have the, the cast that you do. I mean, they're just so they just work so well, and I just love every. And I've worked with every one of those guys a couple of times since on different other projects and stuff. And uh, it's just they're just a it's just a great great voice cast for those guys. And so so we did that, and we even went through and, and like so whenever they came in, that like I think there was just a couple like like April and Casey that were revoiced and stuff whenever you know the Weinstein machine came in and wanted to recast a few of those things. But what was really great is I loved that at least we kept the core of like the four guys intact. I like that I like that those four voices and those four visuals are sort of locked locked in perpetuity now uh, for the future. 
Yeah, like it seems like you 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 like you know if you need the stars, you can do that in the supporting cast. But like the yeah. let's just get the best people to play these turtles in the uh, in the, for those four. Now is it just casting for casting for character, casting for voice, and uh, and what was great is uh, we always joked about it, but after we did the first, because we even did the first record, we basically four walled a room where we had just four mics and we had all four guys in there like going through all the scenes together, and it was so much less uh, sterile than most animation um, productions are because you usually record all those voices separately and then you got to kind of track how they're reacting and stuff, whereas it could be real time and and they were just sitting there just just going back and forth and having all these little great interjections and stuff and they're all they're all they're not they're not their turtle characters but they all kind of fit that that th- those, those character types so well like nolan is raf is like a little bit he's a little he's, he's a little bit bigger i guess in terms of personality goes and he really likes kind of playing the room and being kind of like just like i get like the friendly messing with people and incredibly sharp-witted and james is james is like the solid guy who's like you know the master ninja who's just done it all and then just can dial his voice in any direction and and then uh, and then mitch whitfield is donatello i think he even run he has his own podcast now and, and his own business basically is solely like tech oriented he's like a oh, very wow. <laughs> big the computer guy and then mikey is it was mikey i mean he was just this guy who was like man i'm just happy to be here this is awesome and he was the one who was always like had a lot of energy and so it was funny is that even after the recording when they went and they got into all their cars in the parking lot i think is a margarita mix in la where we did it and like and, and the raf uh, Nolan got into like this big, like this big four by four truck, and then James gets in his sort of like very sharp Lexus, and then Mitch gets into his very you know sensible but cool like nice Volkswagen. <laughs> got into his like I can't remember what it was, but it was perfectly sort of you know character based. It was really funny. So like we just it, whatever that was, and we didn't even know it. we were just going by their voices and just sitting back and casting them, but they just matched up really well. So I love those guys. Did they end up recording together? Yeah, we did. Oh, wow. We did, uh, the, yeah, that, that, the very first recording that we did, we went through the whole movie in like two days, I think, with them. And uh, it was driving the, the casting director crazy because every time we'd stop in between takes, they just wouldn't, the guys just wouldn't stop. It was just like having four kids, like in your backseat, just <laughs> wouldn't stop messing around with each other and laughing. And, you know, so they had to end up muting their mics coming into the, because we couldn't get any work done because they were just, and you didn't want to stop it because, you know, it was just, it's chemistry and it just works really well. But yeah, and so they did that. And then, and then after um, after Weinstein got more involved down the line, they uh, they went in and they, they 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 wanted to like you know re-record all the audio, of course, because everybody wants to do that. And, uh, and they came back, and a lot of the performances just didn't. I didn't think they had that same sort of sharp kind of quality that the first one, where it really sounds like the characters are listening to each other with these little interjections and stuff. It was very sterile. It was very sterile and clean kind of sounding dialogue, which works, but there's nothing like having people just really interact with each other. So even at the end, final mix, even though they had gone through it, we went back in and we uh, we, we put a bunch of the, the original audio back in. I can say that now because Weinstein Company is completely done. So. <laughs> But uh, but we went back in and used a lot of those original day one and two recordings. Specifically, when you listen to the the the, uh, the Raph and Leo fight, like because that just so escalates on each other. And the only way you know how to go here as an actor is whenever you hear the guy go to this level. And you're like oh yeah, well, yeah, oh yeah, blah, blah. and you kind of build on that. And there's something it's very hard to do whenever you're singling it out in that classic animation 
recording style of like say this one line three times and we'll pick the best one and move on. You know, you right. just can't work. That has to be more actual acting. You know. Now, so speaking about that scene, like, so you were saying that was one of the earliest things that you had planned out. Was it like you you were intending to do kind of like the epic turtle showdown, right? Yeah, I mean, and the whole point was that it wasn't just about it being about a fight because it was just about, it was more about it being just brothers, and it was mm-hmm. about it was about it was about all of the because it's easy to get like you know the Justice League together, but like the idea is like what keeps the Justice League together ten years later. That stuff's really interesting to me because I think you've seen that first you know that first story a lot. It's where a lot of people go right away because you just kind of want to go straight to the thing that reads the cleanest. Mm-hmm. But to me, I love I, I love the and it was probably a little autobiographical at the time, but like you know there's a <laughs> lot there's a lot of stuff in there like with with like you know like dealing with being the guy in charge like what leo is and then wanting to be the guy in charge but not being allowed to be the guy in charge like being wrath and like and, and all the lessons that you have to go through and how you have to learn to be a good leader as much as you have to learn to be a good follower in order to become a good leader kind of mm-hmm. thing down so it was always meant to come out of character and then on top of it with brothers like brothers and siblings can just be so direct with each other and they can be so much more cutting in a way that probably is more like if, if you had friends that treated you like that, like your siblings, you'd probably never speak to half your friends again. Of you course, yeah. What what gives, right? But whenever you have that unbreakable bond, you know, it allows you just to to really flesh things out. And the idea that we get to add swords and everything too, was, right? You know, that was the bond. Now, how did you decide who won that fight? <laughs> um. Um, you know, it's funny because uh, with that thing, I, I know I, there's a couple of different answers. One, the story reason for the fight is that Raph had to feel guilty for something. Mm-hmm. Right? Raph had to feel like he really messed up and Raph had to be served a really big piece of humble pie. Uh, Leo needed to be in a position where he needed help because he rarely needs help. And mm-hmm. so, or at least up until that point. Um, and so there was, there was a lot of story reasons for how that happened. Uh, and then, and then, and then it was like basically the question, cause I know there's probably a lot of debate where it's like, you know, like there's no way that Raph would be able to, you know, I, and I'm not really sure if I, it, it, cause it's sort of like, it's just fun intellectual debates, I guess. Cause it's kind of like, it's, well, whatever works for the film is the best, was the best answer. I think that was probably the best way to decide that, that outcome based on the story. But, um, uh, and then Peter was okay with it, which was good because that was sort of the next big worry was that it was all. And I think in every version of the story, it was all about Raph getting a Raph, Raph getting a comeuppance in some way or another. We had an older version of it where, like, I think Raph died in one of the way old, like, first treatments. I think it was. It was really crazy. We had terracotta warriors in there, and he was trying to amass this whole like underground army of terracotta warriors or something. And Raph was the missing key or something like that. I can't remember what it was. Um, and then yeah, and then so then the best thing about that is that like in that end of that, because it's such an emotional exchange that builds up to that, is that whenever he gets Leo down, and then Leo comes up and stops. If you go back and look, the original the original framing is he went up and Raph's eye was like a half an inch from his eye, right? And it was like, and that was the original pitch. It was in the script. It was everything. And so it was really like Leo just, or Raph just got right up to the point like he was just about to kill Leo, which is really intense, right? Yeah. And so <laughs> as soon as we, we sent that in, the MPAA said, no, you can't do that. <laughs> And so, so we went back. It was probably about four or five rounds. Nothing dramatic, but like it's enough. Like, so we went from like half an inch, and then we went to like four inches or so. And they were like, "No, it's still too close." And really, what it was is that one frame when Raph's when Leo's eye 
your face comes up in the sky was like was supposed to be right there. Now he just kind of stops and you don't see anything, right? And then so it was there, and then and then we brought it back up so that it was over his shoulder, and it was like he was gonna like just about to punch down, and even that they said no, it's too aggressive, and so then that's why at the end like now in the final version like the the size actually pointing away, and I think they just kind of like gave in. They're like okay, fine, it works. But that was it was supposed to really be, and and like it was. I'm not sure if I'd fight that more now or not, but it's but it makes sense. Like I get, I get that something can be too intense, and I get the way that they need to sell animation, especially you know Ninja Turtle animation, which you know you need to acknowledge that it's for possibly a demographic that doesn't need to see that stuff. I guess right. But uh, but at the same time, it's yeah, it's uh, it, that was sort of the uh, that was sort of the whole uh, that was the vibe of the whole scene. That was really fun. In your opinion, is uh, is Leo holding back, whereas Raf isn't? Uh, I would, uh, if we wanted to be intellectual about it, yeah, I would say, uh, need this I argument. Would, no, no, it's great. I love it. Um, I uh, yeah, I would, I would say, looking back, I'm not sure if I would have answered it that way now, but or then, but um, I'd say he got Raph to a point where Raph was unhinged and he couldn't, he couldn't control himself. I mean, Raph was being the most like id like mm. the Raph that he could be. Whereas I think Leo's still, and the reason why Leo will always be that that sort of leader character is because he has that ability. And I, I would have a feeling that you'd probably say that Master Splinter knew that. And so, but the thing with this is that maybe that restraint or that control that he showed was the exact same thing that put him in that position because maybe sometimes it's about, which probably would be a good thing in a follow-up story or something, but just, just for Leo to learn to be a little unhinged every now and again, because sometimes like that energy and that passion only comes from that place, and I think that's why Raph probably acts as well, so much easier than Leo does, you know, and so it, it, I, I could, I could, yeah, it's interesting, yeah, I, I'm not, I never, never really would treat it as if he was, as if he was holding back, but I would definitely say that he didn't go into it with the same anger fuel that Raph did and Raph's anger fuel was definitely bigger than the fuel that was, you know, powering Leo's reason and trying to be a fair leader, you know. Well, what I like too is you don't portray Leo as sort of this perfect boy scout. I mean, there's that one line where he says he's better than him and it's like Leo's like kind of this cocky, you know, pain love, at that I point. I love that line, man, so much. I love the idea. Because it's, it's what everybody who feels like somebody who thinks they're better than them is thinking about them. Yeah. And if there's ever somebody in that team that's going to feel like it's going to be Raph, he's going to be looking at somebody like, I bet you that guy thinks that he's better than me, right? And then just for, so for Leo to allow himself that one moment, right? And it felt like as if there was one moment where he was probably as most unhinged as he was. That's probably, and that's probably, that's like, you know, Raph tries to kill Leo, but like, that's how Leo does it is he just basically says something that he knows is going to be really incisive and hurtful to Raph. So, but yeah, that's a really fun moment. And I do like it. And the whole point is, yeah, like, it's, it's, it's getting away from that sort of perfect Luke Skywalker kind of vibe, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, t talking about the animation design, so I, like, honestly, maybe my favorite thing about the movie is the turtles look fantastic i love the way they look so i'm curious where the design came from like yeah that was um that was a lot of us internally it wasn't it wasn't a big crew but we had um we had some friends with uh who were over at warner brothers with jeff matsuda and jose lopez and tom perkins uh and these guys doing these just really fun i and i really love like you know, the, that sort of like the Jackie Chan adventures and the Batman stuff they'd have been doing, like where it's just very angular and it was, even though it was 2D, and it was still at a point, 
you know, because it wasn't there weren't a lot of like really stylized CG human kind like comic book level kind of properties at the time. Now you look back and there's like Big Hero Six and there's Coco and there's all this other stuff. But yeah, yeah. Back then it wasn't as much. So it kind of felt like, well, if we're gonna do something, let's do something that's kind of like stylized and kind of cool. Because again, we hadn't really done much with Amaji, so it was at the same time we were like, well, just in case they can't deliver animation, at least we know it'll look good. Right? Hmm. As a still frame. Meanwhile, Amaji just completely blew the doors off the animation, which is like amazing. They just had such a good crew. Um, but yeah, with the animation, so it was a lot of stuff with that. So like Jose, Jose did a lot of the uh, the ninja stuff. Jose did um, like the foot ninjas and Karai and uh, Night Watcher. He did a lot of the Night Watcher like sort of concept sketches, and then Jeff um, did. A pass on the turtles and uh, April and a couple of other like sort of the humanoid characters and like and winters and stuff like that and then uh, Tom Perkins who's like a monster machine. Um, you should actually talk to him about this. You should be, you reach out to him on Instagram. Um, oh, but sure. He, uh, but yeah, but Tom Tom just did all of the monsters. There's one of one person just to kind of come in and just kind of handle all that. And he's just so messed up that he could just do so many great, interesting, <laughs> crazy monsters and like Jersey Devil. And so, and so the idea was like taking mythologies and trying to recreate them. But then on top of that, the one who probably like takes and pushed them all together was was Simon Merton, the production designer. Okay. And what's great about Simon is Simon Simon isn't an animation guy and he was he he actually came into the meeting thinking he was meeting about a video game. <laughs> and uh, this is like how outside of the industry Simon's uh it because it's uh it, it, and I was sitting there and I had the four maquettes that all clicked together, the big ones of the the, the issue one TMNT. And they were next to me we we spent this hour chatting and then at the end he was like so what project is this for again? <laughs> I totally got that. Like I wanted to do like that film noir and like and want to make it textural and everything else. And so then he was like, "Oh, Ninja! Oh, cool, cool, cool!" And so then he came in, and then he had such a um, he had such a unique view of the world um, in the sense that like once once you get to see the world the way Simon sees it, you never see it the same way because in Simon's world, you notice rust drips coming off of like screws that are nailed that are in the wall, and you start to see all the wet down, and you start to see all the specular highlights, and and so it was sort of like my desire to make it like that, and those guys with all of those great like sort of shapes and designs, and then Simon kind of blending them all together with the lighting and the texture and the look of picture and, and that kind of thing. So it was definitely, and, and there's a dozen other people that, that majorly contributed to it as well in between that as well. But just, if you're looking at that, that's sort of the two big ones. It was definitely that the character design and the, and, and the production design from Simon was just, and it was so different because it was an outsider. He didn't, a lot of times like you work with people um, who've done a lot of animation stuff and, uh, and all the only references they want to show you are the ones from other animated movies, which to me is like ridiculous. And so the idea of like, oh so you mean it's kind of like kung fu panda meets whatever you're like no just make it be whatever you want it to be about come up with something new and different and uh and so that was great because it wasn't even in Simon's vocabulary to say like hey we should make this look like nemo yeah so it was uh it was it was good and, and at the same time that was sort of the thing that probably typified our crew the most is that it was not made up of sort of all of those uh classic sort of feature mm. animation crew members you know even though a lot of them had experience in that they were all people who uh didn't fit well into that system so it was it was a lovely group of uh just like just ragtag guys who just wanted to do uh just something kind of fun and different yeah well it's unique to film but it's also unique to the turtles like i mean 
it's still the four of them clearly like it, it, they all fit but it's like it looks different than any other turtles i've seen like maybe closest to the original mirage but even that's quite different than that no yeah exactly and and then the big thing i was because i came from such a character design background is that i love the idea of seeing the character in the design so if you could see you know if you can see that he's the aggressive one if you can see that he's more the leader if you can see that he's a little bit of the funny guy how do you you know how do you differentiate that and so like so raf's eyes become a bit closer in the center because he's more predatory his neck becomes thicker he gets like a little girthier sort of through his, his torso um leo has more of that classic v-shape um donatello is more slight uh mikey's head is just a little bit bigger his feet are a little bit bigger and this was and, and this obviously it's nothing compared to like the new reboot that they're doing on nickelodeon in terms of like the different sizes and stuff which is like insane cool but um but it was such it was it was a really hard one for pete to sort of uh get behind because i think we went he, i think he was waiting I, he'd been pitched that before the idea that like hey we could you know make make raf as you know big as a house and you know all this other stuff so it was but what was fun is just sort of taking it and just making slight physiology changes that was sort of the thing that i was super excited about and just like how different it made it all feel you know? you know it's funny i didn't realize until now but i guess that, that film was one of the first ones to actually differentiate them yeah no, it was a big deal. It was it was a big pitch to Peter. It was it was really hard to uh, to sort of get the sign off. And it was very much like okay, but I'm gonna have to see it. And so as we'd go along and just like slight, it was a lot of stuff of like just like slight pencil width difference of you know okay, well now that works. But like even like yeah, like Mikey's eyes were a bit more to the side, mm -hmm. you know, a bit wider, like more like he was prey and Brath was predator. Just little things like that was really fun. Oh, cool. Yeah. You were mentioning those uh, those maquettes. Were those the prime? Prime One ones, the ones that were from the first page of the comic? Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I'm not a statue guy. I have a lot of toys, but I, that's literally the only set of statues I own because they're just awesome. It's, I, I agree. I'm the same way. I, like, they're usually out in, in wherever I am, and I just put them on the on coffee table as like actual like decoration. Like It's not like it's not just like just for the toy shelf or something. I just think they're, they're, they legitimately look so cool. Oh, yeah. Especially the set. It's amazing. So uh, let me ask one, one another story question. Was like... Was it from the start you were like, you know, we just don't want to do Shredder again? Yeah, that was that was definitely a mandate, I think, from Mirage, just saying that they just, like, they just we've just seen enough of the Shredder. Hmm. And so then it was like, well, if it comes up, if it, if it, uh, if, if we can somehow get traction with this movie and do another, can we at least plant a seed that we're going to go back into, and so that was, that was the okay, and so that was probably the inclusion of Karai, because then the Karai angle was meant to then translate to like hey and you need to come over to uh to japan and help us out with something and then that would then turn around and and come back at, with city of war i think for the uh for the next one. Oh, so was that wait so so tell me what were the I, I, what were the sequel plans is that what it was so they're very loose we never really did a lot there was tom tanaka who was my co-director and he was really the one like we worked we worked together at shiny he was one of the original game designers from uh earthroom gym and so he was the co-director on the uh, on this and we went through and uh he had he had a lot of great ideas for the sequel and like and one of them we were talking about was basically mikey was going to quit the turtles which was not good i don't know if it would have worked or not but he was basically going to quit the turtles and he was going to put on a black bandana which I always thought was like a really cool like visual. And he was basically going to run away and join the circus, but in this case it was going to be he was going to join the foot. And it was going to be through Karai because we were going to somehow humanize it in a way that, you know, she would have a legitimate gripe, she would have a legitimate problem. It would actually appeal to him because at the end of the day, nobody takes Mikey seriously. And the idea being that 
we really wanted to if we did a sequel really to have something that was very Mikey and Don kind of strong as well because they always end up being such great supporting players and I know they've played with them a lot in the series now and giving them each sort of those things but specifically on a theatrical level going in and just saying like what if we just made like something about the the guy you want to just like dismiss his comic relief but he's got a legitimate gripe he's like you know with with his with his brother Uh, so that was sort of like the loose setup we had a few other ideas and they were going to go back to yeah there's going to be I think we're going to have first end of the first act into the sort of maybe middle second we're going to take place in japan then we're going to come back as all hell was breaking loose in new york so that's interesting you know in the um i i I don't know if you keep up the comics but um in the current idw comics they actually have mikey break away and like it adds for some interesting story dynamics because he's probably the least likely one to break away Exactly, yeah, and that was sort of the thinking way back when, so I'm glad someone's doing it this cool. Yeah, they did it in an interesting way. It's funny that it would have popped up so much earlier, because it seems like he's the one who would, like, you know, wouldn't... Yeah, he's not taken seriously. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, One thing I love about your movie, and I think this is done almost never anywhere else, but the fact that you gave the Turtles, at least a couple of them, jobs... Like that's, it, it, I think they did it once in the car, once or twice in the old cartoon, but it was for comedic effect. But like, no, like they need, like they probably need a job. Yeah, I mean, like you just think about it. It's like the the main, and where do you put all that energy too, right? And so, and then how do you get jobs that are very specific to their personality and what they do? And and, and again, one of the one of the biggest things about like that sort of about the reorder, I think that that went through uh, at the studio level of the story, is that at the beginning. It's actually the shots are basically reversed. Someone they just took it and they just played it backwards. But the idea being that we were supposed to see this opening in New York and this guy being chased and there's a guy on a motorcycle and clearly we know it's a turtle, right? And probably because of marketing you'd know it's Raft before that anyway. But let's say you hadn't seen any other marketing and you'd be going through and he's chasing him and then oh my god, it's a it's a total Batman opening mm-hmm. and then he ends with you know the guys hanging upside down from the chain. The police come in. Whoa, what happened? Then we go to uh, the waterfront. And then you would see the, the bike spin up and then he'd take his helmet off and it was Raph. And so it was meant to be this big, like, oh my God, it's Raph. It's right. so cool. Whereas in the recut, like right at the beginning, he goes, time to go to work. <laughs> and then he puts his helmet on in reverse. And so the entire time he's chasing him, you know, it's Raph. And it's just like sort of undercut it a little bit. But, it, but at the same time, like, you know, the idea being that it's just fun to give them something to do because that's sort of like, I know what they're doing for the, it's, it's just, it's Bruce Wayne. It's like, I know what he's doing for the cool 20 minute action sequence, but what does he do with the rest of his time? You know, it's just sort of, it just helps build the mythology. In. How did you decide on the, 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 I mean, was it, I mean, they're natural fits, but the, the party mascot and the IT phone help. Yeah. The party mascot was, I was in the first draft of the script. I think that was, um, that was uh, that was that was always there, and it was just sort of like how could how could they go out? And I know they've done it a few times, like when it's Mardi Gras, when there's like Halloween, and so one time the turtles can go out, kind of thing. Yeah. But like, how can you have more of that? And so just the juxtaposition to me about the one that kids probably want to associate with the most and the one who's the most childlike is the one who just gets abused by all these kids at birthday parties and, <laughs> and uh and then and then there was a whole there was a whole other cut sequence where they were driving back and mikey was in the van and he's sitting there like complaining to donnie like on the video camera and then he looks over and realizes somebody's watching him and then so like donnie gets him to do the mannequin thing and he's like dude i hate doing so he just kind of like did this thing where he just like tenses up his face yeah. and he's like how's it going and so he's pretending that his his actual real face is a mask and the guy's kind of like uh doesn't really know what to think he kind of waves hi to him as, as, as Donatello changes 
the light so they can get away or something like that. So it was just fun. I like, I like the idea of like it just anytime you can juxtapose them sort of in real life situations with real humans. It was really interesting to me. I like that. Uh, so I wanted to talk a little bit about the cast too. Um, honestly, uh, and I, I think the movie covers characters really well, but this is maybe my favorite version of, of Splinter. No, yeah, I mean, without a doubt, I like, and I, I don't say that to be self-serving, but I find his design and Mako's performance and basically his role as a dad. Mm-hmm. I just, I just, I, I, I just, yeah, I'm a big fan uh, as well. I, I think they just they nailed it in the animation and just even the voice. And Mako is such a great guy to work with. I mean, he was just like a really sweet guy, and he got it. He got it right away. He knew exactly what we needed. Uh, when there's a scene where Mako goes. Um, He's he's walking into the scene and he's just humming. Oh, yes. Oh, good morning, my son. So we just we needed a song and you know a lot of times you show up like an actor's like well what song do you want me to sing and so we're like I don't know we're like just something Japanese and so that was something that Mako uh, that uh, his his mom or one of his parents used to sing to him whenever he was whenever he was a kid and so that was like the lower is like a little sort of like nursery rhyme or something that they used to do and so he was just kind of muttering it to himself so it's all those little touches that just make it like so so much funnier and then there's a great cut scene as well that we it, we took all the way to the final render but like the but the studios took it out where um they would always bring home, the whole shtick was that Mikey would always bring home leftover birthday party cake. And so when they'd open up the fridge, the entire thing was just packed with these like foil wrapped pieces of, of cake. And and Splinter was a total cake hound, right? So he, as much as, you know, so in the background, you'd see Splinter always trying to have the piece of cake. And the guys would be like, you know what that does to your cholesterol. <laughs> And so there was a really, it was a really fun, sweet back and like, and who does it? It's always like, you know, it's the younger kids sort of, you know, like younger, I guess, in terms of, you know, maturity or whatever their places are. And so it was just fun. That was always Donatello and Mikey were the ones who like, as these two guys are off trying to take, conquer the world with all of their things that they're doing. <laughs> Leo and Raph, it, uh, it ends up being the two younger ones that end up taking care of dad the most, which is really kind of funny to me, but I miss that scene. You know, I love that, like the, um, the soap opera stuff with him, like I, I'm just, I love, like it's fun, like his spinner's really funny and feels yeah. really unique, yeah. and I love that it's an actual Japanese actor. Go figure, like. No, I know, yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. It was uh, that was that was something definitely from the start that we were just really, really, really keen on making sure that we maintained as much as we could with that because it just felt, and again, it's all about juxtaposition. I mean, it's all about things that are just relative, and so having these kids who are just a little more colloquial and they're just younger and they just a little more streetwise and. You just play him a little bit more, you know, that way. But I, I like the idea that he's sort of acclimating to Western society a little bit more. And he's like, really? And I did, I did like the soap opera stuff. That was really fun. We had a couple of scenes in there that we got cut to where he was like really into it and like invested in following stories as they were unraveling. I can't talk right now. I'm watching this. <laughs> I guess I, I, I'm so fond of that, that, that whole take. And what was Mako to work like, like to work with? Uh, he's, a, he's, just a, he's just a dream. He was so great. And he actually, it was supposed to be like a four-hour shift, but I think he ended up staying, and he said he, because we were going to do it on two different days, and I think it was just easier for him just to do it on one. So, like, he stayed, like, I think for, like, a whole eight hours, and he just, it was a true, but a lot of time you get diminishing returns after about four hours. People's voices just start to sound weaker, and they just don't. It's really, it's a, it's just, it's hard work. And, uh, but he was just a true, he just plowed through it all, and he was nothing but cordial and, uh, and really a sweet guy. He's really good. Very cool. Uh, what about Patrick Stewart? Patrick Stewart, yeah, I didn't work directly with him, but he—he's just—he's a pro. He gets in, nails it. 
Did you uh, work with um, uh, Chris Evans at all? Nope, not with Chris. No. Oh wow. Okay. Those, those were those were recast by the studio. Ah. Uh, uh, but uh, yeah, not to not to not to put the dirty laundry out too much. Oh yeah, no. But, yeah, it was basically that was basically their their call. It when I was there, whenever Kevin Smith came in um, and did that, mm. uh, and he was for his little cameo, and uh, I was way in the back. But he, uh, it was fun because he, he just he just really dug the film, so it was kind of fun just watching him just sit there and. Uh, just kind of like, no, 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 keep playing. I just keep going on watching. So he just watched all the Leo Raff fight just without, you know, he didn't have any work to do in it. But oh, that's cool. Yeah. And with Nolan North and Kevin Michael Richardson, you had a couple guys who would go on to stick with the Turtle franchise later on. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Yeah, all those guys. It's, uh, yeah, it was crazy because there was that, and I ended up circling back with James on Ratchet and Clank later too, which was really cool. So yeah, and I and I I love Kevin Michael Richardson. Um, his voice is so great, and we've done he's done quite a few voices over the other because he worked on us with Gotcha Man that didn't come out. Uh, we were at Lucasfilm for like three four years doing a movie up there, and then he was he was in that as well. And so it's always one of those like as soon as we can hire Kevin, we'll do it. Uh, I think the final couple questions are just, um, did you hear any sort of final reception from Eastman or Laird on the, the final product? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't want to speak for him, but um, sure. I know that I know that Peter was really proud of the director's cut that we had. Hmm. I know that he probably acknowledged what had to happen, uh, or what had to, didn't have to happen. He acknowledges the business from which a lot of the last minute changes and stuff like where they just cut out five minutes of rendered footage to put in you know, newer, quicker done footage and stuff like that. I know he gets that sort of um, business side of it because he's obviously dealt with a lot. And I and I and I, I wouldn't be surprised if that was you know a, another feather in the cap of saying like this this is like this is why this is somebody else's game and not mine. And, mm. and it was probably time to and, and again I'm not speaking for him, but just uh, and then and Kevin's always been super supportive. Kevin's a really cool guy, and he's uh, and he's always come out as being a fan of the. Uh, of the of the movie and stuff too, so uh, it'd be really nice to try to figure out something to do with Kevin's. No, and, and I guess did it just not make enough to to warrant a sequel, or is it the Nickelodeon changeover? No, because that was before the Nickelodeon thing. Because even after even after they canceled the second one, it was still a year or so, I think, until Peter mm. sold everything off. So it wasn't definitely wasn't box over. I mean, because the thing made like a hundred million dollars. Yeah, and it cost. Before before the changes, it was only twenty four and a half million dollars, and so they came in, I think, and added another like four or five million dollars at the last minute, I think, just to reshoot these scenes for whatever reason. And um, but yeah, and so and so I think it was it, it. I think it was a perfect storm. I think it was whenever you have so many partners coming together on something, it's really hard to know who the quarterback is because mm. if you're the creative, you're just looked at being the quarterback because you want to have something cool and creative if you're the studio it looks like oh you're just gonna yeah it's and nobody really sort of takes responsibility for that kind of stuff nobody not not like nobody sort of takes the lead on that a lot of times when those things come out so um sometimes you can have almost too many cooks in the kitchen in that way and so at the same time uh Amaji was going through a big change as well and they really wanted to do something they want to have a, a, a an even better experience on their next movies after turtles uh and so they the Mamaji went through a big overhaul and they really crewed up like on the executive level and the creative management level whatever that's and um and so i think they they wanted also to to you know 
not move on, but I have a feeling there's probably a desire to be like, well, if we can do this, but we can do it, you know, more of ourselves mm. uh, and have more control, then that's what this is. And Ninja Turtles 2 just feels like it's going to go through the same, you know, the same rigmarole that the first one went through. And so on a studio level, so and I would say it was probably 12% of each one of those things, maybe, that all somehow came together with... Well, there you go. We can't, but I, there's no reason why it shouldn't have just even gone direct to DVD or something, or just like it just because all the assets were there. I mean, like we just worked out so much on that first movie, and you could really just grab all the assets now and probably just do another movie of it, or just even just go straight to series. Not that there's a reason to, but like the like that's that's how sort of that's how that that's how helpful it is once you get a whole CG world up and running. You can, I mean, and DreamWorks does it great because they sit back and they do these CG features, and then they just basically port all the you know the assets over and they just figure out how to continue it on like boss baby series and everything that's on it so it's a yeah. good model i just wish they would have done it it would have been really fun and it set up a really strong universe like it really it seemed like it had a lot of legs to it yeah i know and it was just like and just wrong place wrong time probably i guess i guess that's kind of what what it is yeah it wasn't really too i was i, I was i was upset but i was so busy trying to get gotcha man up and running at the time that it was just sort of the thing that i wasn't even sure if i i was going to direct it or not but i was going to i was going to write it um, and so, yeah, and so it was, it was just that and probably, uh, it, it was, it was, yeah, it, it was that and, and, and probably, and at the same time, Peter wanting to get out of it at the same time, I'm sure that was brewing in the background. Like you never know with all these things, right? Like it's, it's always, it's never the thing that you think it is. It's always just some, it's usually, it's usually a tumbleweed and just, there's gotta be a final straw at some point where people just go like, ah, we're not going to do it. So, there's no one thing. It's just like, yeah. Yeah. So my last question is, uh, who's your favorite turtle? <laughs> um, it's funny. I I have this theory that like your your kids sometimes are all like sort of different voices that you have in your head jumbled around, and so I feel specifically with the Ninja Turtles that that feels like I've kind of got like a bit of each one of them in my personality, and so it kind of depends. It kind of depends where I'm, I'm at, and it's such a lame answer. Uh, because I, each one sort of has its merit, and I think right now it's almost seasonal. And so right now I think I'm feeling, I'm feeling much more sort of third act Leonardo. <laughs> you know, like just like, and at the time I probably had a little bit more Raphael in me. I think at the time, right? And then, and, and so you kind of go back and forth. And there's a period in your life where you're like, just listen, it's it's just tonight is just a Michelangelo night. I'm not, uh, we're not going to go out too much. But I'd say, you know what? I think ultimately, to me, I think um, I would say Leo would be just because I like being able to have him say he's not just one one character type i like the idea of complexity i like the idea you think he's going to be the one ranger but we can add those kind of imperfections to him and to me those imperfections of that character are ultimately outweigh raf showing sensitivity or raf growing because that's great and that's solid but there's something to me about a character if i if i got if i got to pick at the end of the day it's probably leonardo because he's supposed to be flawless and when he's not it's more interesting oh that's beautiful yeah, yeah. that's what makes it perfect i love that well, is there anything? So, what are you working on now? Uh, yeah, right now, I'm, I'm doing doing a couple of things. Uh, we're uh, we're finishing up this movie in Montreal called Troll. It's not the DreamWorks one. It's basically based off of uh, Norwegian troll mythology, which is like really strongly grounded in Norse mythology and everything. And so, it's this really cute little father son story that we're doing. It's a CG film. We're lighting on that now. It's going to be wrapped this summer. And then I am also working with this toy company called Wowie in Montreal, coincidentally, and uh, they had this. Uh, 
big toy out last year called the Fingerlings. Uh, and it was like these little, they were on the Ellen shows, like this little piece of plastic that's on your finger. And it basically responds to it. It's like a Tamagotchi, but like a an actual uh, 3D little sort of like mini. It's a monkey. My daughter has two of them. Oh, so, okay. Yeah. Go. So yeah. So the, the, they came out, and this was like a huge hit for them. And then they realized that then they wanted basically a My Little Pony kind of universe created around it. So they actually reached out, and I just created this this kind of world for them. And then now they want to do they want to do animated programming for YouTube. So we're working on that now, and that's going to come out starting in May. Uh, and we're also going to have like another component with it as well, which is going to kind of be like almost like a variety show with with little fingerling puppets. So that's going to be really fun. You're going to see that I think every Friday. And, and a few other upload days, I think, as well. So that's been something just completely different from all the film stuff just to do because it's just relying on cute, fun character stuff. And I think after I finished the Pony movie, I still kind of felt like I wanted to do something in that space of it should be, it sh it's cute, but it doesn't have to be this funny yet it is. And it's funny, but it doesn't have to be this sweet yet it is. And I just kind of like that kind of, you know, that sort of middle ground between all that stuff. It's really interesting, you know, as opposed to something being like it's 100% pretty or it's 100% like aggro boys action stuff you know yeah I noticed that like I, my, my daughter watches My Little Pony and I'm like I, I'm legitimately laughing at some of this like it's oh, yeah. it's yeah. really funny it's stuff it's a thing. No, it's a really well done show. The writers are super smart on it, and uh, and then the in the animation they just come up with some really good gangs and really just fun little action beats and stuff. And there's references for a doll. Like I totally get it. Like and I I'd never known anything about uh, the franchise really in terms of story or anything until until we started doing storyboards on the movie. And uh, and then yeah, as soon as I watched, like it, this is so different than what I thought it was going to be. And it never it just had so much more to say. So so I just I love I love I, I don't know the genre. I guess the type of story it is. I guess. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that kind of world—it's just really interesting. So you got to exercise a few demons on it. It's good. <laughs> well, I, I think that basically covers it, uh, uh, Kevin. I want to say thank you so much. Uh, I also want to thank the guys over at Turtle Flakes, who I do this podcast in conjunction with. And uh, well, uh, thank you so much. So take care. Thank you.